you know, you had three different kind of chief product officers, you had two and a half different CFOs, you had, you know, different HR leaders. And so you really try to blend with what the strategy and direction of the company is going to be and which one of those senior leaders is best able to accommodate you and help you on that journey. In the world of business finance, things change fast. Welcome to the Leaders of Modern Finance, a show where today's finance innovators discuss what the future holds. Learn from experts in the field as they explore emerging finance trends, insights, and more. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the leading accounts payable automation platform. With Stamply, collaborate easily and efficiently with invoice approvers, vendors, and anyone involved with purchases. This helps you quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders of Modern Finance. My name is Ken Boyd, and I'm a four-time author, including the book, Cost Accounting for Dummies. I'm a business writer, a former CPA, and I'm the content manager at Stamply. And joining me today is Jeff Cross, the CFO of Brandmaker. Jeff, thanks for being here. Thanks, Ken. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Let's start off, if you could just, and I know there's a lot to it because in doing research for this call, tell us about your background and your journey to what you do now. Sure. So I I think my career really started when I joined a company called Hoover's Online or Hoover's Inc., which is an online data information service based here in Austin, Texas, where I am located and have lived for almost 40 years now. So joined them as their controller way back in 1997. Uh, Two years later, we did an S1 and filed for our initial public offering, went public in July of 99, uh, moved up through the ranks and took over investor relations and really took over all of the public accounting reporting that is necessary, had a tremendous CFO there named Lynn Atchison, who has been and continues to be my mentor. We ultimately sold our business to Dun & Bradstreet back in 2003, at which point Lynn left the organization and I moved into the divisional CFO role there. And so then spent the next eight years or so with Dun & Bradstreet in a variety of roles, both in financial and in operations roles, ultimately leading to being the CFO of what we called the small business unit, which was about a half a billion dollar combination of businesses that had been acquired and sales channels that had existed at Dun & Bradstreet, but it was really focused on the small to mid-sized business. That was kind of the first part of my career. Prior to that, I had been with a you know a public accounting firm of just a very small regional one. I had done some work with the University of Texas Systems, had been a controller in a in a couple of public companies, but that was kind of the first part of my career. As we were talking earlier, I feel like my career really took off and I found my passion when I joined into the private equity world, which was in 2011. And so I joined the private equity world. I went to a company called TravelClick, went in there in their finance organization, ultimately ended up becoming their vice president of operations for North America. So really felt like I needed to get more operational background in my experience, as opposed to just the straight finance background, worked with a tremendous CFO there named Gary Michael. And we together sold TravelClick to Toma Bravo back in 2014 uh, and got a very nice return there. Uh, I then joined a company called Abila, which is in the nonprofit segment selling uh, fund accounting solutions and association management systems. So basically CRMs for nonprofits. They were backed by Excel KKR, 
at the time. We ended up growing that business rather dramatically, both through acquisition and organically, and ended up selling it to ministry brands in 2017, which was backed by Insight Venture Partners. Later that year, I joined Arena Solutions, which is in the product lifecycle management space. They were backed by, excuse me, JMI Equity, grew that business very successfully and exited in early 21 to PTC, which is a Boston-based software and technology company publicly traded. And then I found my way to Brandmaker, joined Brandmaker in the summer of last year. So I've been here coming up on a year and just a few weeks. Brandmaker is in the marketing operations and marketing business acceleration business. We have been very, very acquisitive and active in the markets. We've acquired a company based in Vancouver, British Columbia called Alicadia, who was in a similar space. We also ironically purchased a company here in Austin, Texas called Hive9. And so I've spent the last several months bringing these three organizations together into a unified business and a unified strategy towards how we are going to approach the ever-growing business of marketing business automation. Wow, that's fantastic. You actually touched upon one of my follow-up questions, which was, what made your CFO at Hoover such a great mentor? Um, You know what? She was one wicked smart. She is just a very smart lady, but she has also taught me a lot of the leadership qualities that I try to exhibit today, how to build a team, how to manage a team and help develop them and mentor them. Some of my proudest moments are the people that have worked for me especially in that Hoover's timeframe, what they have gone on to do in their careers. And so it was really about the leadership style and how do you get the best out of people that you work with. She taught me probably the most important thing that I've learned in my career and that my job is not to just do the numbers, prepare financial statements, whatever your typical CFO does. It is to provide an environment where people can do their best work. Because if you hire good people and get out of the way, you will ultimately be successful. That's great. And it was great to get that fairly early, given everything else you've done. It was. I don't know if I would call it fairly early because I was still (laughs) still well into my 40s at that point, but it was still pretty early. Okay. The next couple of questions, it's interesting given your background because you've been involved in so many organizations, but at Brandmaker, your current role? What's your team structure? Uh, What's the size of your team at where you are now? Yeah. So it's it's pretty typical in private equity firms. If it's not sales, marketing, or product, it probably falls under the CFO. And so for me, I have accounting, I have FP&A, I have internal technology, I have legal, and I have data security. And so all of those report up to me. We are a relatively small team, but I have two people in my legal department, one person in my data security. I have about seven in my IT department, which is spread obviously across three different companies and three different geographies and three different time zones. And then from an uh, one person uh, doing the FP&A and then an accounting team of eight or nine that are again spread out between Vancouver, the US and in Germany. Wow. Given that you have to wear so many hats, if you were to guess, what percentage of your time do you think you spend in meetings? More than I would like to, but I will say that more than half of my meetings are one-on-ones. 
are really working with my leadership team. So I have five direct or six direct reports right now. So I spend at least an hour a week with each of them. And as I've always told them, that is their time with me. I don't come with an agenda that says, here's what we need to accomplish. That is the hour that I make available to them for them to bring up whatever they may need. What roadblocks are they experiencing? What questions do they have? And then I also have a one-hour team meeting every week where I bring all my leaders together so that we can inform each other of what are the projects that we're working on. And so if there is an impact because my global controller is doing something that may impact how we do our forecasting or FP&A, I want to make sure we have that dialogue with the entire team on the phone. I would say I probably spend 70% of my time in meetings of various sorts with lots of different constituencies, whether it's our private equity firm, whether it's our CEO, whether it's our leadership team meeting, or whether it's my departmental meetings, that probably makes up 50% of the 70%. What numbers do you report to your board? Do you have a standard? And again, you're going from experience to experience. What type of package do you give to your board where you are now? Yeah, it's interesting. I try not to give them anything and just tell them everything's fine, but that doesn't work very well with boards. So we really have a standard package. You know, we will do you know, profit and loss statement, balance sheet, cash flow. We'll provide forecasts based on our current estimation around bookings or sales. We, we have what's called a monthly operations report where each department, each one of our leaders presents for 10 or 15 minutes about what's going on in their organization. So the marketing leader will talk about the the key performance indicators in the marketing organization, like pipeline or conversion rate or stage. We have the sales leader who will then talk about forecast, what are the top renewals, what are the top prospects and large deals that we're working on. We have our chief customer officer who owns our implementations team and professional services team, and he will talk about uh, the, the key metrics for themselves like utilization and uh-huh. so forth. Our people and culture leader will provide her view on you know, turnover, attrition, hiring, uh, our employee net promoter score. We do an ENPS study every quarter. And so how has that trended over time? And what is the feedback that we're getting there? And of course, I will present my financial initiatives, which really focus on how we're consolidating three companies. So as you can imagine, three different accounting systems, three different technologies, you know, that that are used, you know, three different methodologies around how you do reporting. And so I have several key initiatives on consolidating our CRM, consolidating under one software provider for our ERP, things of that nature. So we'll do my reporting on that. And then obviously our chief product officer will talk about the product roadmap, how we're bringing the three platforms together in a unified platform, etc. So we have that as a monthly standing meeting to where the board is getting a touch point with all of our senior leaders on a regular basis. And then I have a, a one-on-one or actually a three-on-one with our private equity firm every week to where I go through other indicators that are important to them, such as cash and accounts receivable and some of the other key metrics that really the financial people at the private equity firm are really focused on. Okay. Boy, that's a lot. That is really interesting. If you could talk about your tech stack where you are now, if you guys have certain software that's unique to your industry, that would be interesting to know. 
you know, our product is unique to our industry, uh, which is rather interesting. So I'll talk about that in a minute, but we have a pretty standard tech stack. We are just finishing up implementing NetSuite uh, across the board. We had one company literally on Excel, one company on QuickBooks, one company on our German company was on a local product there. And I always get them confused. I think it was called eGecko, but that may have been their forecasting tool, but we're bringing everyone into NetSuite. And so that implementation just concluded at the end of March, still going through a little bit of the growing pains, as is always the case. But NetSuite is our main stack. We are a Microsoft office. And so we leverage you know, Outlook, Teams, SharePoint, OneDrive, all of those items for our tech stack. And then we are using Adaptive Insights, which I believe now is a Workday product for our forecasting tool. Again, bringing those implementations together Currently, that's kind of my first half of 2022 initiative projects are really consolidating all of those systems so that we're standardized across the board. Now, this just popped in my head while you were explaining that. Have you had any consistency in the ERPs and tech stack at prior companies? And by that, I mean, do you know enough about NetSuite that you preferred that at prior companies? You know, I've used NetSuite, I've used Intact, I've used Hyperion, Oracle Hyperion for reporting. They're all about the same, in my opinion. I think each of them have certain qualities that are better than others. So I think integrations, the ability to integrate with other systems is a little bit stronger at Intact, but I believe the reporting out of NetSuite is more user-friendly for non-finance people. And so when you're trying to engage your leadership team to take ownership of their budgets and their metrics and really use that in decision-making, giving them an interface that's easy for them to understand, I think is critically important. And that was one of the primary reasons why we chose NetSuite as part of our implementation. Great. If you could explain the timeline of investments for a private equity firm. uh, Sure. From acquisition to sale. Yeah, I think it, it varies quite a bit. It varies by private equity firms. Some have a tendency to turn companies faster than others. It also depends on every private equity firm has funds and they've raised multiple funds over the years and they deploy those that capital to do their acquisitions. And so if you just go raise a billion dollar fund and you're one of the first two or three acquisitions out of that fund, your timeline may be a little bit longer than if you are one of the last acquisitions used out of that fund because they generally want to turn over those funds every eight to 10 years. And so I would say the shortest timeline that I've really thought about as a practice for a private equity firm is probably that three to five year range. I do know a few that are in the six to nine, six to 10 year range. I would say on average, it's about four to seven years. Although I will say that none of my prior lives have made it four years. So TravelClick was a little bit over three was a little bit over three. Arena was about three and a half. So it's, you know, I've kind of been in that three to three and a half timeline, at least with my experience. And do you think that those shorter timelines are because there was a better market in terms of valuations? Will they string out if we go into a recession? Do you think, what's the impact there? Yeah, I, I think it will. So clearly the, my most recent exit with Arena Solutions was right time, right fit, right strategic, right niche. So PTC was looking to round out their entire PLM 
business around SaaS. They called it the SaaSification. And we were the last piece of the puzzle. And so they had purchased several SaaS providers prior to that. We were the missing piece. And so it was perfect timing for that transaction. Nabila was purchased by ministry brands who had a very different hypothesis. It wasn't really focused on the products and services that Abila provided, but they were very, very, very focused on payment processing. And when they saw multiple billions of dollars being transacted through our systems, they became very, very interested. And so it was a little bit of a different hypothesis than I think what any of us expected, but it was just something that was really niche and really just relevant at the time. And it was a great opportunity at the right time. We, we actually were not seeking a sale at that point. They approached us. Interesting. When you do buy a portfolio company into a private equity fund, what percentage of senior management stays do you typically see? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I'll answer that question in two ways. So one, obviously management equity is critically important. You want your leadership team and your senior leaders aligned with the strategy of the portfolio of the private equity company. And so, you know, I've seen anywhere from, you know, seven to 10% management stake to as high as 18, almost 20% management stake. Again, it varies a lot by private equity, but I would say on average, it's probably in the you know, 12, 10 to 12% range usually sticks, sticks with the management team. I would say usually when a private equity firm makes an investment in a company, there is a bit of turnover at the management level. General statement, private equity companies generally want to bring in their own CFO. They will likely retain the CEO for continuity. And then depending on what the particular strength of that business might have been. So it's a very, if it's a very strong product company, you may keep the product leader. If it's a lead generating machine, you might keep marketing leading leaders. If you've had a, you know, a huge sales improvement, you might keep the sales leader, but generally I would say probably 50 ish percent of the existing management team at the time of acquisition generally stays on through the next phase. Okay. And how do you, jumping another step on that, so you're trying to manage these businesses, you're taking over, how does that turnover in those other roles affect you? That seems like that would be very challenging, giving all the change that's happening, conversions, integrations. How have you been able to manage that? That sounds very difficult. You know, it it is a bit of a challenge, but generally it's a very amicable transition. It's usually someone who may be close to retirement age and has just said, you know what, I got a nice little equity play out of this and I'm ready to move on to my next one. It could be someone that just doesn't want to be part of a larger organization. And so even though you have those conversations prior to acquiring a company, you know, a lot of times people will change their minds once they see what the new direction might be. And obviously in our case, we had three different management teams right? Between Brandmaker, Allocadia, and Hive9, we now have one management team. So by definition, we had, you know, several people that, you know, you had three different kind of chief product officers, you had two and a half different CFOs, you had, you know, different HR leaders. And so you really try to blend with what the strategy and direction of the company is going to be, and which one of those senior leaders is best able to accommodate you and help you on that journey. That's really interesting. Another thing that caught my eye on, is it pronounced Abila? Abila. Abila. As someone who tried to teach accounting, 
for a while at the college level. Fund accounting is just really difficult. It's its own animal. It would seem that if you had a software to do fund accounting, which I still don't understand, that must have been a huge competitive advantage. It was. The interesting challenge at Abila was, as a general rule, your nonprofits have very long-tenured, stable accounting people because fund accounting is its own unique animal. And I would say it's probably not taught a whole lot these days. And so you have a tendency to have people that have been, are very long tenured in their jobs. And the reason I bring that up is I've kind of focused my career on SaaS-based business, software as a service. That was very difficult to do at Abila. People liked having their server sitting under their desk, keeping their feet warm because they wanted an on-premise instance of things. You also have a lot of nonprofits. We actually were very popular with Indian reservations. And they can't do the cloud. And we had a few governmental agencies who can't do the cloud unless it's on their GovCloud environment. And so that was a little bit of an interesting animal. But yeah, the fund accounting world, we were, it was a pretty fragmented market. And there were really only two or three players that could participate or compete in that endeavor. You know, the challenge was really there's a limited number of nonprofits. And although Many of them seem to spring up overnight, especially as you think about name, image, and likeness. That's all the rage in college athletics right now. People are forming nonprofits all over the place. And so I do think it is becoming more advantageous. The biggest thing about fund accounting is you have to be able to go back to any donor and show them exactly how their dollars were used. And so if you are thinking about making a donation to your favorite nonprofit, and you have a specific use that you want that to go towards, you tell them what that use is. It's called a restricted fund. They have to use it on that purpose. If you don't restrict it, then they can use it for administrative costs or for anything else they want to do. So the example I used to give all the time was your local pet shelter, right? If you want it to, you know, for food for the pets or for you know, medicine bills and medicine veterinary bills for the, you can specify that if you don't they may use it on paying the salary of the kennel keepers or you know buying kennels or whatever it may be so if you're passionate about a certain nonprofit you should be very specific on how you want those funds used and then they have a responsibility to be able to report back to you exactly how those funds were used Yeah, it's such a great point. And that was the difficult restricted versus unrestricted was so difficult to teach. Another thing that caught my eye about Brandmaker, and I went through the site and looked at the companies, just broadly speaking in that industry, given current economic conditions, do you see clients cutting back on marketing spending just generally? I would say they're not cutting back, but they may be refocusing. So one of the benefits of our product in particular is the ability to see the impact that the dollar you spend has on your sales or your pipeline or whatever. And so it's critically important that people know how their money is getting spent. I used to joke a lot about the spray and pray approach. You sprayed Google with a bunch of keywords and you prayed that somebody listened. Now, you know, technologies are out there, including ours, that allow you to track how that spend manifests itself into leads, how that lead manifests itself into an opportunity, into a closed opportunity, an ASP. So what I'm seeing out there right now, and frankly, I don't think we've seen, I think we're at the beginning of the impact of recessionary spend. But what I've actually seen is people more willing to spend money on technology 
to help them better identify how their discretionary spend goes. Okay. That makes sense. I had not thought about it from that angle. You mentioned also the the predict in the notes that we had, the predictability of SaaS. What type of churn rates do you see in SaaS companies over the years in the portfolios that you've been involved in? They're fairly broad reaching. It's very okay. different if you're a business to consumer right. business, SaaS business than a business to business one. You know, for the most part. And it's also if you're focused on small businesses that are here today, gone tomorrow, or may not get their funding or whatever the case may be. I would say for most SaaS businesses, kind of the benchmark is around 90%. So 10% churn uh, on an annual basis. You know, I've seen as low as 83 or 84. And that's actually when I joined one of my companies. By the time we exited, we were at 92 because we identified that there was a certain vertical and a certain segment of our business that just wasn't going to renew, right? They had almost had a one-time need and then they were finished. And so we kind of cleared them out and we said, let's focus in the industries and the verticals that are very sticky and the ones that are most likely to grow. The best one I've ever seen is probably in the 95 to 96% range on a pretty consistent basis. And frankly, that was at Abila when you have kind of a captive audience, because if your nonprofit is still existing, you got to have fund accounting software. Okay. I will say one of the things that is also very much a measure from a private equity perspective, what we just talked about was churn, which yields your gross retention rate. Net retention rate is also important. So not only are you retaining the customers, but are you growing them? And so, you know, if you've got a $10,000 customer and they expand to be a $12,000 customer, you actually have 120% net retention rate. And so that's also a metric people look at, private equities look at, especially as you're moving towards exit. And that really should be anywhere in the 105 to 120 range. If you're upselling your existing customers because you're providing them more value, more licenses, more modules, however your business is constructed. That's interesting. I'm going to ask one more question before we wrap up. Tell me about, I do not watch NCIS, but tell me about the GIMP system at NCIS. Well, so I, I can't remember exactly the context of what it is, but my Gibbsisms are a couple. One, I don't believe in coincidences. And so, you know, if something happens, there's a cause and effect, and we need to be able to go, you know, figure out, you know, what the cause was, because we probably have seen, you know, the effect of it. And so that's probably the the biggest thing that I, that I take away. But yes, I am a huge NCIS fan and original, not the... LA, not the Hawaii, not the New Orleans, the original NCIS. Okay. Okay. My brother-in-law loves that show. Well, to wrap up, Jeff, and this has been great. If you had one piece of advice for leaders of modern finance, what would it be? You know, I think it is really focus on the businesses that you feel comfortable in. I think every situation is unique. And so you need to understand what you're walking into and how you're trying to grow that business. For me, the overall most important thing is predictability. You know, as a CFO, you need to be able to predict the future. I wish I could do it for the stock market because then I probably wouldn't be working anymore. (laughs) Um, But you need predictability. And especially in the world that I've stepped into, which is the SaaS world, predictability shouldn't be that difficult because you do know what the key metrics are that support your business. So having tools that allow you to predict outcomes. 
where's that next dollar of spend going to go and how will it get me, you know, be returned to me. So being able to project what you're forecasting for P&L, balance sheet, cash, all of those things are important from financial metrics, but you also need to be able to forecast your key performance indicators. So as I said, if I gave a million dollars more to my marketing team, what would I get in return? Mm -hmm. And so having a system you know, like a brand maker for marketing, even in Salesforce for CRM systems and so forth, things that actually allow you to track and analyze your spend so that not only do you know how your current money is doing, but it should be a leading indicator and a forecast of if I put more money into it, if I put future money into it, what should be my expectation? It's not unlimited. You can't sit there and go from spending a million dollars and getting this return and spending $10 million and expecting 10 times the return. So there is a declining value there. But the predictability in the forecasting piece is probably the primary function of the CFO as it relates to you know, the board, as it relates to their private equity firm or their ownership and to their peers on their leadership team. Personally, I would always say, don't forget that you're also a leader. You also manage people and developing and mentoring and helping your team accomplish the best that they can is also critically important. As I said earlier, my job is not producing financial reports. It's not reporting to the board. My job is to provide an environment where people can do their best work. And so if you hire good people, listen to them, get the hell out of the way on occasion, and trust them to do the jobs that you hired them to do, you will build a bond and a relationship with your team that is unlike anything you've ever experienced in your life. That's such great advice to end on. Well, Jeff, we really, really appreciate you being here. This was information that we normally don't get on the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. We appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity and really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening to the Leaders of Modern Finance podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review. You can see the show notes and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at stamply.com slash leaders of modern finance. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the most powerful way to process and pay invoices. Stamply is the only accounts payable automation software that centers communication on top of the invoice so that accounts payable collaborates better with approvers, vendors, and anyone involved in purchases to quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com.